Well, greetings. We are going to be doing a more topical message today. We'll also have a children's sermon in a minute. But let me invite you to turn to the outline. There is some extra information this week that you're going to be sure that you gather. And so go on to the link on the YouTube video website, or you can look on the church website at www.chewilaefree.org. Welcome back, kids. Great to have you again for another children's message. Let me start by asking you a question. How many of you have ever gone on a hike? Just raise your hand. You've gone on a hike. How did you know which way to go? Well, you could just follow the trail, which is what we usually do, but you know, sometimes that trail disappears or it goes off in several directions and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to go. You know, this has happened to me. I've gone camping and then I go hiking in the mountains and, and the trail, it just disappears. It's a cloudy day and I can't look up at the sun and, and try to see which way the directions are from the sun because it's cloudy. Well, that happened and I didn't know which way to go. So you know what I did? I used one of these. This is a compass. This tells me what direction I can go. So I always take this when I'm hiking. And this compass, it shows me which way is north because did you know that the Earth has a magnetic field that's over the North Pole and it attracts the needle on this compass to go to the north direction. So it's great that way if I know which way is north and I don't get lost. Did you know the Bible is like this compass? The Bible shows us the way to Jesus. The Bible tells us that if we don't believe in Jesus as our savior, then we are lost and we're headed in the wrong direction. Ugh. So are you headed in the right direction? Have you put your faith in Jesus? You know, the Bible also is like this compass because the Bible shows us the right way to go in our life, to go the right direction and how to live our life. So if you tell a lie or cheat or steal or disobey your parents or you're unkind to people that you don't like, then the Bible tells you you're headed in the wrong direction. Ugh, don't want that. So, we need to read our Bible every day so we can learn how to follow Jesus better and then we can go in the right direction. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord, help each of us, each of these children to read in their Bible to know what direction to go to follow Jesus more closely. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Bye. Chuck Swindoll gives this parable. Let's say you're my vice president in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm going overseas for a year or so to establish a new branch office. So I leave you in charge of the home organization. And I tell you that I will write regularly to give you some instructions. So for many months, I send letters from overseas and I spell out my expectations. I give directions. 
And then finally one day I return. And soon after my arrival, I go to the office, but I'm stunned. The grass and weeds have grown high. Windows are broken along the street. Wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet has not been vacuumed in weeks. No one seems concerned that the owner of the business has returned. So I look around and I find you, the vice president, playing a video game with the sales manager. So I take you to my office, but when I walk into my office, I discover it's now become a TV room for watching afternoon soaps. What in the world is going on, I ask. What do you mean, you respond. Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. We got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have a letter study every Friday since you've left. We divide all the office personnel into small groups and discuss many of the things that you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually memorized some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two, I won't mention names. They have even memorized an entire letter. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, I say, you got my letters, you studied them, you discussed them, and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Do, you answer. We didn't really do anything. So let me ask you, does this parable describe how we treat God's letters to us? Those letters that are the Bible. See, one of the most troubling things that a pastor can hear is, I am not being fed. Well, aside from feeling criticized to the core, it often reveals that Sunday morning sermons are some Christians' only source of feeding in God's word. Now, some during this time of pandemic may feel like I haven't really been fed in months. So what do we do with that? See, the stay at home Time has revealed the many cracks in our world system, including in our spiritual lives. We now have to relate to God on our own, and frankly, many are floundering. Most of their spiritual life is tied to meeting in a large group at church. So how has your alone time been with God these last two months? Are you daily feeding in God's word? Not not just reading, but feeding? And do you know how to self-feed? Well, I want to offer some ideas on how you can interact with scripture and feed yourself. So the name of this message is Feed Me. But let me begin with our attitude about the Bible. Which is your view of the original scripture? Which of these three statements is closest to how you look at the original scriptures that were written thousands of years ago. A, scripture is a great literary work of morality and stories that teach principles of religion. How about B, scripture is inspired principles from God with some errors in the details. Or C, scripture is God's word without error that used individual personalities of human authors. So, does our view of scripture really matter? 
Does it matter if the Bible is divinely inspired or not? My answer is a resounding yes. Otherwise, how do we know what parts we can trust? Is reading the Bible is another man-made book? Then what's the point? It's just one of many book choices that we have. But if it's the actual word of God, that makes a difference. In fact, that's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. If you want to turn to 2 Timothy 3.16, the first part of that verse says, all scripture is God-breathed. That means that it came, actually, God is the origin and the source of the Bible. It's not just it's inspired like a painter or a musician is inspired. It means God is the actual author and originator of of the Bible, and he used human authors to do that. So that means that the Bible has authority to speak into our lives. 2 Peter 1.21 adds this, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Scripture wasn't just a person wakes up one day and they just decide, I'm going to write something great and inspired. No, this says God moved them in 2 Peter 1.21. God used human personalities and circumstances and writing styles to produce many kinds of different biblical literature. We call those genres of biblical literature. Some genre is history, some is teaching, some is poetry, some is prophecy. And it's all wonderfully creative and wonderfully tied together in a thematic way. So the first point on that outline that I hope that you have downloaded and printed, the Bible provides God's unchanging standard. The Bible provides God's unchanging standard. Now, some would ask, well, aren't God's standards outdated today? I mean, it's a modern world, and that was 2,000, 4,000 years ago. Can't we just live our lives by our own standards, some have asked? Well, let me give you an illustrative story. Years ago, a railroad engineer called the telephone company every day at exactly 11.45 a.m. to verify the time. That's kind of what we did back then. If you wanted to know the time, you could call a number or even get an operator. So finally, the telephone operator asked the engineer, why do you call each day at exactly the same time? And the engineer replied, I call to be certain I blow the noon whistle exactly at 12. The telephone telephone operator responded, well, how coincidental. I set my clock every day by your 12 noon whistle. So do our standards, do they adapt to what society thinks? Because there are attitudes and behaviors not long ago considered wrong, maybe even a generation ago. But now they're not only accepted, but they're promoted. So when there is no absolute standard, how do we know what's really right and what's true? Things can't just keep changing and adapting as far as standards go. We need something that says these are absolutes. These things hold a society together. So what place does scripture have in your life? Do you filter all the things in your life through the grid of scripture? Or do you maybe mix a little scripture, a little world, put it together and try to come up with something that you think works? 
See, if scripture is actually God's very words, like 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21 said, if these are God's very words, if this is his love letter to us, then it's the most important thing that you have available to you to read, to meditate on, and to apply to your life for guidance. So, that's our first point. The Bible provides God's unchanging standard. So let's look at our second point in Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the whole of the Psaltery, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light on my path. Hebrews 4.12 in the New Testament made it a very pointed statement about the word of God. It says, For the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Several surveys have revealed, though, how few Christians actually read the Bible regularly on their own. Some common complaints, the Bible's too hard to understand. Well, much of the Bible, it isn't relevant to my everyday life. Or, I read the Bible when I was younger and and laid a foundation then. But how can we expect to be spiritually shaped on just one meal a week that is spoon-fed on Sunday morning? So the second point on your outline, the Bible provides life transformation. The Bible provides life transformation. So how are we to be transformed? See, Scripture, it's more than just information gathering. James 1.22 cautions us that hearing and doing the word were never meant to be separated. Knowledge requires action. Transformation is also more than just observing the do's and don'ts, a list of rules. Scripture also, it does have do's and don'ts, but it also commands us to do some hard internal things like love your enemy, reach out to your neighbors, give of your resources, which the Bible says are really all God's resources anyway, they're his. Another one, care for the poor, include the immigrant, And focus not just on the outward behaviors, but on your heart. See, transformation reaches into that that hidden part of our heart, that resistant area, and it calls us to painful soul surgery. Transformation calls us to keep growing. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But how can we be filled if we don't eat? Not eating enough spiritual food makes us spiritually lethargic. We need spiritual feeding to engage our world, which creates the need for even more food. Do we bargain with God over Bible reading? If I give God some time, then then do I say, well, then he will give me some tangible blessings in return, so I better make sure I give a little Bible reading every day to get God to bless me the way I want. Is that how we bargain with God? Is that what we do in other relationships? Are are they that conditional? So we eventually conclude, well, I didn't get enough back from her, so I'm done. 
See, the Bible, it shifts our attitudes. Consider how the church has shifted its view on some big issues throughout the centuries, like slavery, like colonialism, and racism. We have been challenged by Scripture to look into our own hearts and see some very widespread societal attitudes, even worldwide, and the Bible has brought about change. So in the global pandemic, what attitudes do you think God is shifting? Maybe that's something you can talk about in a small group if you want to pause your player and talk with one another. What do you think God is up to? What attitudes is God challenging and shifting? It'd be a great topic for discussion. And scripture gives us some clues. Some more on transformational Bible reading program. It's really, you know, you might ask, how do I start something like that? It's like training for a marathon. Runners start with small distances and they they work up to 26 miles. See, in Bible study, you, you could just start with a few minutes, say, I haven't done this. How do I do this? Well, you don't go and run 26 miles your first day as a marathon trainer. And you don't have to read, you know, for four hours in the Bible. Start with a few minutes and work your way up like the runner training. And remember, it's a journey. It's not a sprint. If you miss a day, it's okay. Show up the next day. And and remember this, most Bible insights are not like brilliant flashes of lightning. They're small additions day after day, like putting bricks in a wall of truth. And you can consider, try a variety of approach, um, different things, different approaches that might work for you. Read a small section of scripture. Ask God to show you what he wants to teach you. Now, sometimes something reaches out and grabs you out of the text. Other times you you don't see as much, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be spectacular every single day, brick by brick. And some people, they underline in their Bible or they use color markers to highlight a word or a phrase. And let me just say, it's not a sin to mark up your Bible. And some people, they get a sheet of paper and they paraphrase their passage of scripture, or outline the passage of scripture, or they write a poem, or if they're artistic, draw pictures. I know many people who journal their thoughts to record their growth, and they write down those insights that they got so they can remember them. And then, of course, there are those who memorize whole verses or larger sections of scripture, and it's amazing how the Holy Spirit brings those verses to mind at just the right moment. And one one other idea for individual study is the ancient practice of Lectio Divina, L-E-C-T-I-O-D-I-V-I-N-A, if you want to Google that for a more thorough description. But in general, it's a slow, meditative, prayerful reading of a short passage of Scripture like three or four times. And each time you read it, there's a different question of application. And then you sit and you think and meditate and pray, and then you read it another time and you answer the next question. Now, some of you may have never read the Bible all the way through. And if you want a larger overview of the Bible, if you read four chapters a day in the Bible, you will complete your Bible reading of the whole thing in a year, four chapters a day. Some people want a very deep and extended study of Scripture so they can have a 
more comprehensive understanding. There's some great groups out there like Bible Study Fellowship and Precepts, and they provide a great structured framework for a deeper study. But I want to tell you a little bit in the rest of the message about an inductive method of Bible study. Inductive means that you don't bring your own preconceived ideas to the text. Now, that's kind of hard because we all have our, our biases, things that we've been taught, and many of them are good things, but we already think we know what the passage is going to say, and so we come with a preconceived idea into the text. Inductive Bible study says, let Scripture speak out for itself. So here's a simple three-stage approach to that deeper inductive Bible study. Now, you can follow these three steps, and I would submit to you that if you were to do this on a regular basis and follow this inductive three-step method, you might find yourself digging out more, a lot more, than you can absorb on a, from a sermon on a Sunday. The first step is called observation. Observation is what does it say? So first, when you're looking at, at observation, which is your objective looking, trying to say, let the text say, say out what it, what's in it, ask yourself, though, to start, what type or what genre of Bible literature is this? Is it narrative, which is a lot of the Old Testament and the Gospels? Is it teaching, like in the epistles? Is it poetry, psalms, proverbs, uh, and then other long poetry passages spread through the whole Bible? Is it prophetic? The Old Testament, of course, has the major prophets, the 12 minor prophets. Um, there are prophetic book of Revelation and then different prophecies like in, in Matthew with this, uh, all of that discourse, much of the prophetic literature. And you have to look at the genre because the kind of literature will influence the way you read out of that text. But let's say that you start with a verse. And in each verse, you might say, what word or words did the author choose to use? And what does that word mean? And you do a word study to find out what that word means. And then you also say, well, where did, what did that word mean elsewhere in that same chapter that I'm looking at? And what did it mean in different passages in that book of the Bible or in that section if it's a gospel or an epistle what do other epistles say about that word so this is context you want to find the context and not just have that verse isolated and then you also look at the structure of each sentence there's a main clause there's a dependent clause and yes we are talking about grammar here Hope you don't turn off the video when you hear the word grammar, but it helps to kind of put a little outline of what's the main idea of a leading idea of the sentence and then put the dependent clauses underneath. So let me give you an example. Take the very well-known and beloved verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So though John's gospel would be classified in the genre of narrative literature, this particular verse, as a lot of other verses in John, has a teaching idea that's more typical of what you would find in the epistles. So you pick out some of the key words. You know, a key word, and this isn't the only choices, but loved is important. 
because there are different ways love is used in scripture. What does world mean? How about only son? It's really one word in the original, but only son. Whoever. You could look at what does whoever, where, where else does that appear in John? And believes, perish, eternal life. And you can look further in John to find context for some of those words like love and world and believe. For instance, believe is the whole theme of John chapter 3, really the whole theme of the entire gospel of John. But when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he is talking about believing. And then John 3.16 comes very quickly thereafter. How about that phrase, only son? It's a huge phrase. It doesn't mean Jesus was just an only child. In the same book that we've been in, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, only son means unique, one of a kind who came from the Father. So it talks about Jesus' origin, not just that he was a firstborn in the world. So God so loved the world. That's our main idea. That's the main clause in this verse. But the next phrase is the dependent clause because it gives the reason that God gave his son to us. And that reason is to save whoever believes unto eternal life. Whoever broadens the recipients from only Israelites. And that would be something that we'll talk about next time in interpretation. So if you're looking for a great word study resource where you can look up meanings of words and find where else they occur in scripture, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, it's been around for a very long time. It's still in print. It would cost you $13 on Amazon. Or if you want to study online, you don't need Strong's because it's online at a place called Bible Hub, B-I-B-L-E-H-U-B, has a huge amount of information and you can click on words and find out what each one means. So that's observation. What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? So step two, what does it mean? This is a more subjective question to ask. So first you start out when you're trying to interpret these observations that you made and put them together. You say, what was the author trying to communicate to the original audience. And so you might have to do a little study on the background and audience and purpose of the book. But I would suggest as you say, we have this information that we got to put it together in a framework to interpret it. And the literal, grammatical, historical, and I add contextual method of interpretation, which is what the word hermeneutic means. It means interpretation is the way, the best way, I believe, to faithfully preserve God's intent in writing that passage of Scripture. Now, some types of Scripture, like poetry and and prophecy, they contain figures of speech that must be interpreted a little differently. So you might say, what does that mean? Like, for instance, in the Psalms, it often talks about God hiding us under his wings. Literal would say that God is a bird, but we know that can't be true. And so because it's a figure of speech for color in poetry, we know that it captures the idea of how a bird shelters and takes care of its little chicks and that God does the same for us. So we look at what the original, original audience would have heard. 
what are the types of scripture? Are we going to look at the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method? But I also think a key step in this stage is to create the main idea of a passage. So the challenge is to summarize the a verse, which is easier to just summarize a verse, but you can summarize into one succinct sentence a whole paragraph, a chapter, an entire book of the Bible. You can come up with an idea, a main idea to summarize these things in one succinct question. For instance, John 3.16 could be summarized. God's love provided eternal life to anyone who believes in Jesus. You know, we need to resist adding ideas like Jesus died on the cross for your sins, not because it's, a, it's not a, a valid idea, but because it's not in the verse John 3.16. That resource, Explore the Book by Australian Sidlow Baxter is great for giving outlines in an engaging way. And it's available on Amazon for $60, still in print. And then our third stage is application. What? do I do? Application, what do I do? This stage is more than a quick general statement tacked on to love God or believe more, you know, general, vague ideas. Applications need to be specific, concrete ways I will live out scriptural truth. So in John 3.16, I list ways I will specifically rest in God's love since he sacrificially expressed himself by sending Jesus. Or maybe since believing is a central theme in John and, and how we relate to God, I'm going to think of what are some specific ways that I will trust him? What are some particular struggles I'm having that I want to put in God's hands? And in application, I list those specific struggles or weaknesses. See, this is where scripture is more than academic information. It's principles for everyday life. It has to be more. That's why God gave it to us. Let me close with this story. Richard Dahlstrom, pastor of a Seattle megachurch, writes about meeting a German grandmother when he was traveling in Germany. And this woman had survived the horrific bombing of Dresden in World War II, where untold civilians were killed. Her husband had been drafted into Hitler's army years before and was sent to the Russian front. And at the end of the war, he had no way to get home. And so he had to walk thousands of miles. And it took him a year. I remember stories of those who were in Siberian prisoner of war camps. I mean, it was thousands of miles. And it took them a long time to walk home. No one came and got him. So after the war, Germany was divided, which split her family even further and created still more profound losses. And she asked Richard, she said, life has been hard. Do you know what keeps me going and gave me hope? She pointed to a large Bible on the table and says, every morning on my knees, I meet with Jesus in his word, and he's always given me what I need for the day, joy, wisdom, and strength. Richard offered this insight. He said, I have serious doubts that this woman woke up those mornings and said to herself, hmm, I know I'm supposed to have a quiet time, so I guess I'd better get up and read my Bible. 
He says, when your entire world collapses, you are drawn to the Bible as a source of sustenance. Do you feel like part of your world has collapsed in these days? Are you willing to seek God and his word for his guidance about how he wants you to respond during this time of pandemic crisis? What will be your plan to regularly study God's word to feed yourself? It will sustain your life going forward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have given us your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have a love letter from you that gives us background for how things came to be, for human mistakes, for our own guidance. The story of you coming down and becoming man in the person Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not just be content to go to church or even to a small group and leave our study at that. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that leads us to study the scripture and let you speak to us individually. I pray that you, Lord, will speak to those who seek you. And I pray, God, you would help us set aside the distractions and the barriers to focus on you and your word as you speak into our hearts from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.